Our scripture text this morning is Acts 17, Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. It can be found on page 1178 in your pew Bibles. It's not one of the traditional resurrection texts we might think of, and yet it's one that the resurrection is all throughout the truth of what Paul proclaims even into a city that is full of unbelievers a city full of idolatry, and Paul comes with the resurrection. He comes with a message. And we see then what is our purpose this morning, to see not only the resurrection, but to see how that message informs our very life and even informs our evangelism, our witness. And what I want us to think of as we read this is sometimes we, we compartmentalize evangelism and, and our Christianity as if evangelism is, is something we may choose to do, something we will do perhaps and choose to do. Whereas what I want us to see is, is, as being a Christian is to be an evangelist, is to be someone who proclaims this message, who lives the message of resurrection and preaches, and, and I use that term meaning in a lesser degree than that we're, we're called all to the, the pastorate, certainly not, but it is a proclamation that we all give as believers to the world a message of resurrection. Before we read, let's pray. God in heaven, we have opened a holy word, a word without error, a word that proclaims to us life itself, and even in a story, a narrative that is true, We see what your messenger brought to an unbelieving world, an unbelieving city, a city full of idolatry. What a great picture of our own hearts. And we see a message that comes to them and a message that has come to us as well. We pray that it would resonate with us. We pray that we would glorify you and understand your word, that it would be rightly spoken and rightly heard. We ask this in your great name. Amen. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This ends the reading of God's word. The resurrection changes the world. The resurrection changes the world. I enjoy the thought of Paul, this Jewish-educated man who has, in the world's terms, quite literally nothing, who comes into Athens, a well-known city, a city regarded as a center of philosophical understanding and acumen of, of education. He comes into this center armed with nothing but the truth of Jesus and the resurrection. And that's what you see replayed throughout this text. It, it appears repeatedly. This is the very reason he is brought in front of the Areopagus. This is why he's there, because he's preaching this new message. And it's a message that initially they hear, and some think this is ridiculous. He's a babbler, and some think this is new. Let's hear it. They like to have their ears tickled, as the verse says. They wanted to, they wanted to just discuss new things. That was their deal. And so Paul comes in armed with a message of resurrection. And to Athens, we all know Athens. If you studied history, you know this city. Now at this time, it was not what it once was. It wasn't Rome, but it was still regarded as very significant. It was still regarded as that intellectual place. The elites were there. And, and Paul comes in. And, and what we should relate to with this is that we are armed with the same message. And I say that because so often we think all we have is this message of Jesus and the resurrection. And we seem to downplay it. How can we downplay it? You see, this is the greatest message ever. And it all hinges on the resurrection. If it ended at the cross, if Good Friday was it... We have a very sad story. And one that probably doesn't even is not even worth being told, quite frankly. If the tomb had remained sealed, what's the point? What Jesus had come to do mattered not at all. In fact, it failed. If he had remained in the tomb and his body had decomposed and his bones were, were taken away, the disciples lied about it, all of that would have made no difference, but that's not what happened. And so the very truth, what we present, and the truth that changes the world, is that the tomb was opened, is that Christ rose, and thus revealed to all that what he had done on earth was accepted. And that he had taken a people to himself, and that they indeed are risen in him. 
And that's the message that Paul brings. That's what he is armed with. And he's here all alone. He's waiting for his companions here in Athens. And this solitary figure sees the idols around him and embarks on a mission, a powerful mission. And so what we see in this passage today is that Paul's preaching shows what is the center of our our life, what's the center of our evangelism, Jesus and the resurrection. We see this first with Paul in Athens, and Athens and idolatry. Athens and idolatry. You see in verse 16, explains he is outraged with the idolatry as the city was full of idols. Historically speaking, we even know that this is true as well. This is no exaggeration. One Greek historian and traveling writer described Athens as one single great altar, one great sacrifice. There were said to be more statues of pagan gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together. A Roman satirist remarked that it was easier to meet a statue in Athens than to meet a man. They were commonly recognized to be the most religious of human beings in the ancient world and apparently quite proud of it. This is who they were, and Paul is hes astonished at what he sees. Full of idolatry. And, and if you've ever traveled, I have not personally, but I have read of those who have, who've traveled to, to regions where there is that paganism and that idolatry. And when you see it, apparently it's, it's something that just blows your mind to see people prostrating themselves before the, these idols, to see what acts are considered worshipful before them. What, what could you imagine as this city was full of? and full of this paganism and idolatry. And, and Paul then brings the message. He, he comes before in the synagogue, we read first, but also the marketplace. The marketplace isn't just a place of commerce. It's not like this crazed man is walking around the mall raving something. That's not the image we should get here. The marketplace was a place to exchange ideas as well, and so Paul does that. He goes to the proper place, and he explains and is teaching his, his message, the message of the gospel. And then you read in verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Now, to understand Paul's message to them, we have to understand what these philosophers actually believed. What were they teaching? What was the, the sort of the beliefs of the day right here? And these beliefs couldn't have been more opposite in many ways. Epicurean belief, Stoicism, these were very, very different in their approaches. Epicureans, for, for more of a modern term, were very materialistic. They were materialists. They tended to be those who pursued pleasure and little else. So there was also an element of hedonism there, a just devotion and pursuit of pleasure. They believed even the soul was made up of very fine matter like atoms which dissolved into the atmosphere at death. It's a, a radical materialism. The best they would say about the gods, if they would say much about the gods at all, is that they are indifferent to human actions. They neither need worship nor meddle in people's lives, is what they would say. So if there are gods, they're out there and they don't really matter. They don't really intersect. And for them, the wise person doesn't fear judgment, nor does he hope for something after this life. Rather, he lives for the moment. Live for the day. And as we go through these philosophies, I'm sure you can hear echoes of them in, in what we hear and encounter today. But that was, that was the Epicurean take. Stoics, on the other hand, tended to be very serious. 
They tended to be earnest people, possessed of a great sense of moral duty. They believed essentially in what we would call pantheism. There was a divine, rational principle. There was a divine God who inhabited everything, who, who was, everything was in essence God. They called this the, the logos, or the Greek word, the Greek word for word. And it inhabited everything, and this was the divine. And so you had the Epicureans who said they didn't really matter. But for the Stoics, it, it mattered significantly because the divine was in everything. They had said such things that we are all the offspring of the divine. So for them, the wise person recognized his connection with everything else. For them, the wise person cultivates an attitude of self-sufficient contentment. For them, someone would try to be impervious to changing circumstances. And, and there you get the idea of stoicism or, or being stoic. So these are the philosophies Paul's encountering. And in each of them, Paul's preaching would have, would have seemed to resonate and agree with it and radically diverge in other ways. You see, Epicureans would agree with Paul when he would point to the foolishness of the idolatry, when he would say these, these idols are worthless and serving these gods with hands they don't need. And, and the Epicureans would have, would have applauded that and said, absolutely. But they would recoil at the thought that God would raise the dead and that God would be active, or that there would be a judgment, they would have denied that outright. Stoics would applaud Paul's insistence on God's nearness. And Paul even quotes a Stoic philosopher. They would have appreciated that, and Paul shows an understanding of what they believed. And they would have, it would have resonated there, but they would have rejected his announcement that history has a direction, moving from times of ignorance to times of repentance. They would have as well rejected the finality to the day of judgment. They wouldn't have seen God as, as personal as the way Paul describes. And so to these people, Paul's preaching would have seemed to combine several philosophies, and that's why some would have called him sloppy. That's why they call him, some call him a babbler. You see, he's nitpicking. He's, he's just taking things from other philosophies and he's putting them together in a system that doesn't work. He's babbling. These things that he's trying to bring together are antithetical. He's taking ideas from Stoics. He's taking ideas from Epicureans and he's adding in his own, perhaps, foreign gods themselves. You see their, their ignorance here. Others had said he's preaching foreign divinities. Now, why would they say that? Well, you have to understand... This is one of the only places in God's word where Paul is speaking directly to a group of unbelievers who have no knowledge of Scripture whatsoever. He's not speaking to Jews who've been raised with the Old Testament. He's not speaking to Gentiles who had converted to Judaism or who knew something about the Scriptures. Paul is speaking to the unbelievers in Athens who have never heard these things. And so what they hear, they hear this Jesus and they hear this resurrection. And so what they likely heard was Paul preaching something of this, this God and perhaps a companion God, resurrection or new life. Like these were the gods of, of Jesus, healing perhaps, and, and a God of new life. And he's bringing these gods to them and they misunderstand it. Paul's preaching of Jesus and the resurrection, though, you see, is what's causing this. And that's instructive to us. You see the center of what he's saying. What are they coming away with? Even if they're misunderstanding it initially, they're coming away with Jesus and the resurrection. He's preaching it so much that they think these, these are two gods, perhaps. 
That's the center of what he's saying. He's trying to bring to them that knowledge of Jesus and he and his resurrection from the dead. Well, this message creates quite a stir. And so now it's, it, it departs from the marketplace and goes to the Areopagus. What is the Areopagus? It's literally the hill of Ares, another name for the god Mars. If you've ever heard of Mars Hill, this is it. This is where Paul approaches the, the leaders of the day. The Areopagus was a court of the intellectual elites. They sat over the city. They would discuss and judge these things that came before them. Just how formal was this? How much authority did they possess? We don't exactly know, but there seemed to be some authority here. And so they call Paul forward, wanting, as verse 21 makes clear, to hear something new. You can almost hear in the text, boy, they're excited to hear something they haven't heard before. Sort of, you can sort of understand who these type of people might be. Many of you might be thinking, yeah, we know what they are like. We normally try to stay away from those type of people. But these are the people who like to reason. They like to think. They like to hear new things, weigh it, and discuss it, and that's what they do. And so now we see Paul's evangelism. That's our second point, Paul's evangelism. Paul speaks to them in verse 22. He addresses the city. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is uh, masterful, actually, what Paul's doing here. Why? Well, first, he's building a bridge. He's finding a point of contact or a point of, of entrance. Here, here I can insert myself here. This is a way for me to begin. And he's beginning at a point which is, interestingly enough, a point where they're declaring their own ignorance. They're saying to this God that we don't know. And so Paul is saying, he's not necessarily, he's not praising them here. He's saying, I see that you're very religious quite clearly. They seem to pride themselves on that and their idols. And yet what he's doing is he's saying that that in itself means nothing. In fact, let me tell you about this God you don't know at all. In fact, you admit you don't know. Let me tell you about him, that he is the only God. Paul, Paul's goal in all of this is, is to get to Jesus in the resurrection. And that's the goal of our evangelism. And that's why in this methodology of Paul's evangelism, we see as well a sort of map to follow. That our goal in presenting the gospel is to present that message of Jesus and the resurrection. But notice how he gets there. He doesn't just start right there. No, he has to correct many misunderstandings. And so he starts at the beginning don't let anyone tell you that origins of life don't matter. Don't let anyone tell you that you can believe whatever you want there and still be able to retain the gospel. Paul goes all the way back to correct the, the misunderstanding of these unbelievers who've never heard any of this. And at each step, you see him counteract these very varying and, and arguing philosophies. And so he begins, God made the world and everything in it. God created all. To Epicureans, who if they thought of God at all and believed they were distant and uninvolved, this is a corrective. There is a God. The God you don't know is the God. He's the only God. He created everything. To Stoics, 
who believed in more of a pantheism, that the divine was part of the creation. This is also a corrective. God isn't creation. He made it. He's personal. There is a being, God, and he stands in distinction of what he's made. He is here. He created this. He created what we see. And then he also says, being Lord of heaven and earth. So he places him above all things. This is the God over all. Remember, he's talking as well to those who believed in many gods and many lords. And the heavens had many gods of all the different aspects of those heavens. And the earth had many different gods and the gods of the earth. But no, this is the one God. Now Paul corrects the idolatry of the city. He establishes, okay, there is one God who created all. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And then he says, The Lord does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The pagan world believes man needs to come and, and he needs to worship God and he needs to construct houses for their deities and the deities need to live in these houses. And there was a spectrum of, of how radical this was. Some would have believed the temples and idols were the very gods themselves. Some would have believed that, that they represented the divine. But Paul is addressing all of that and he's saying that to worship the Lord and build these temples to make these idols doesn't serve God at all. This unknown God that you don't know, let me tell you about him, all your worship is wrong. He doesn't need anything from us. He's sovereign. He doesn't need us to bring him praise. He's not lacking. And then in verse 26, he moves to the historicity of Adam and how they are all connected as humankind descending from one man. Scholars say the Athenians may have been quite proud of themselves and even believed that they had sort of descended from a higher humanity, perhaps some kind of racism idea there, that they were superior. And Paul says, no, that they've all descended from Adam himself, from one man. Verse 27, And the duty of man is to seek God, and God is not distant or unreachable. That's what we see there. Again, he's correcting these things. The Epicureans, uh, God's just out there. No, he's knowable. He's reachable. And again, the, the Stoic idea that, it, it's that idea that it's, it's very slippery pantheism, that God's just in it all. No, he's, he personally is knowable, reachable, understandable. And then Paul quotes from one of the Stoic poets and pulls out a kernel of truth. We can see as well here in building bridges and seeking to engage unbelievers, we can as well point out or, or seek to intersect with them where they might say something that's true but might not understand it. Where we have to take something that they might say and say, now you believe this, and in theory that's true, but it's not true with the way you place it, it's true here. They would have said things like, in him, in this divine, we live and move and have our being. They would have said, for we are indeed the divine's offspring. And Paul is saying that is in fact true, but let me put it in this, this way that works. That's the actual truth. That you yourselves proclaim, but you've got wrong. 
In verse 29, Paul explains that we are indeed all God's offspring, but if we are the offspring of God and image bearers of him, then why do we think he is connected to idols? That's Paul's point. Paul says God will not overlook unbelief anymore. You see where he's going, okay? He's been correcting false understandings and false interpretations, and he's honing in, he's arriving at his goal here. In verse 30, he arrives at the the human dilemma and the problem of sin. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, this God who created all things, this God who is sovereign over all, this God who's revealed himself, this God who is knowable, he will judge the world in righteousness. There's a judgment coming, he tells these unbelievers. And then he says that he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And there he gets to the resurrection. This man who Jesus has risen from the dead, he will judge all. Paul certainly said more than this. This is likely a condensed, shortened version of what he said. But you see the, the, the major elements here, and you see his goal, because that's where he ends. Judgment coming by the man who rose, and then the idea of belief. It's a gospel presentation. It's the idea, repent, is what he's saying. God won't hold his hand back, he's saying. Turn and believe this, that's his message. And Paul provides us here a beautiful picture, a beautiful methodology of evangelism, one where we seek to engage it. We seek to understand what they believe so that we can correct it. Now, that's different from believing that we can argue someone into the kingdom. We can't do that. The Holy Spirit works, and the Holy Spirit produces faith. We don't by our argumentation, but the Holy Spirit does use the gospel we proclaim. The good news of of God, of Christ, of the resurrection, that is what the Holy Spirit does use. And he gets there. And in our third point, we see proclaiming the resurrection. Proclaiming the resurrection. How do Christians engage the culture? How do we live out Easter? How do we let the message of Jesus' resurrection motivate our evangelism? I'm taking several points here that I got from Alistair Begg. He had some very helpful things to say about this. In our evangelism, we need to avoid two things and rather land on a right approach. Begg says, beware these responses and approaches to evangelism. We say no to admonition. We say no to accommodation. And we say yes to proclamation. We say no to admonition. What do we mean there? Well, sadly, some in the church take only the route of admonition. Rather than do what Paul did, they would be Jonah in the streets of Nineveh proclaiming judgment. They would be those who would rather say that judgment is coming and good riddance. And that's it. Just admonish. Paul could have done that here. He was appalled at their paganism. He was appalled at their unbelief. They didn't have even an idea of the right truth of the gospel. Rather, Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't seek to just judge. He doesn't just seek to admonish and say, you're all going to hell and apparently say it with a bit of glee. 
And that's the way some, shall we just say, Christians like to do things. Say judgment. That's not the approach at all. Admonition needs to be a part of it. Paul does it. Judgment's coming. That's not the only message. And why? Because admonition and just judgment completely neglects the good news of the resurrection. You use it, and it's a vehicle to show you this is what's happening, but here's the escape, here's the good news, it's new life. Just admonition completely misses the point. We bring in the threat of God's judgment, but we bring in the good news that there is salvation, there's new life, and the man who judges and judges in righteousness has risen from the dead himself to believe in him means you have life and you escape this judgment. So say no to the approach of admonition. Say no to the approach of accommodation. This is the opposite error, and this is one I think is where we see the church mostly fail today. That's just to accommodate yourself. Yeah, you know, origins doesn't really matter. It's not the center of the gospel. We don't need to take a firm line on that. Let's just accommodate that. We're not violating the truth of of Christ, are we, is what they will say, but it's all connected. And you just continue to accommodate. You continue to try to say and, and just become like the world, and you adopt their definition of love. And you adopt their definition of everything. You adopt their understanding of salvation. You adopt what they believe about sin. You're just trying to accommodate. You're just trying to build bridges. And that's that over overdoes what Paul even, we, we see him do here. Paul's trying to build bridges, but not at the expense of the truth. The church all around the globe right now seems to, at times, be accommodating itself. Not holding firm on the tenets of of, of the the scriptures, the principles of the gospel, and accommodating. Say no to the approach of accommodation, for that doesn't retain the idea of the resurrection either. You see, Paul had to correct, and he did. He did it well. He did it winsomely. He did it explaining the truth. He did it understanding what they believed. He didn't just smack them with judgment. And he also didn't just say, you know what, we're basically on the same page here. You just need to adjust this just this little bit and you're fine. He told them the truth and said it like it was. Say no to admonition. Say no to accommodation. Say yes to proclamation. And that's the whole point. That's what we see Paul do here. He proclaims. He proclaims the truth. Paul recognizes what he's up against, and as we began, he comes armed with nothing else but the gospel message. Jesus and the resurrection. That's where he goes. That's what he proclaims. He proclaims it to his listeners. We have the same job today in a very similar context to an unbelieving world. Jesus and the resurrection was Paul's ultimate response both to the marketplace ideas he encountered and to the elites of the day. It's the same answer. Whether we're talking to our friends or or acquaintances or neighbors on the streets, the message that you're proclaiming is Jesus and the resurrection. Or if you're in the classroom, if you're at the highest levels of academics, what do we bring Jesus and the resurrection Paul's Paul's delivery may have changed. The method, the way he approached it may have changed, depending on who he was talking to, but the content didn't. He proclaimed. 
Like Paul at Athens, we find ourselves living in a society cluttered with idols. We should, like Paul, respond and be in outrage over what we see, and, and though it not be in perhaps the figurines that are made to represent gods, there are still gods of wood and stone and materialism and what we pursue. Our own idols may not be statues, rather the gods of sex and success and power and security and money and materialism and work and family and leisure and sport, they're all still the same. There are many, many ways to illustrate this. I am just going to choose one. There are many you could go to 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 point out this type of idolatry in our culture. I was recently watching a documentary about professional golfers, (laughs) just to show you you can find idolatry anywhere, right? In this documentary, they were following these PGA players and trying to get a real in-depth look at what was their goal in life, what was their motivation. You follow them, and, and this film crew followed them into their homes and talked to their families and, and followed them around some sort of goal and, and watched them on the tour and watched them play. And, and you, you got to get this look into their lives. And, and I was struck how unapologetic and just accepted their motivations were. And when, when you heard them, you were thinking to yourself, well, that's not right. It's totally wrong. Saying things like, well, winning is everything. Golf is my life. It's, it's my motivation. I, I'm friends with that golfer. I really like him, but I always want to beat him. And, and, and that's right. You know, that we, we should because you're trying to be the best. Competition isn't wrong. Winning is a worthy thing to pursue in sports done well. But as life. And what became apparent as you followed them is what were they after? They were after fame and recognition. They were after that very ugly green jacket. I don't know why. I don't know why that's one of the trophies, but, you know, it is what it is. They were after their names written somewhere. They wanted people to know who they were. And they were all vying against their supposed friends to make it happen. And in the process, you know what their goal was? Money. And the trophy, and the trophy wife, and the trophy house, and all the people around them, and their agents, and everyone else, were like those who were just seeking a ride along, and and seeking their own fame, and their own money through the process. And I'm not just picking on golf, this is true of any sports, this is true of all of life in, in, in an unbelieving world. And it illustrated what was the the pursuit of our lives itself, what the pursuit of unbelievers are. And it's sort of this, this almost merging of an Epicurean and Stoic ideal. It's the same kind of live for the moment, but, but be moral about it. But really what you're after is fame and recognition. And though they never said this, what it really came down to is this world's all that matters. And I really got about 15 years here to make my name known. To be remembered. That's their religion. So how do we, and I think that appropriately reflects much of what the, the, anyone on the street is believing. How do we engage? How do we bring the message of Easter to them? I think we would want to echo Paul's words and say something to the effect, I perceive you are all quite religious seeking as your purpose in life immortality through fame and name recognition. However, the life you seek and the gods you serve don't offer what you truly need and seek. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in games or money or fame. The only name recognition that matters is if God recognizes you on the book of life. God will not overlook your ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Easter isn't a day. It's a message. Easter isn't a day of family and ham. It's a message that we believe and live. It's a message of life itself. And I want to end with one final thought also I'm taking from Beg. Bravery. Bravery. Beg says this, This is no time for wimpy Christians. This is no time for moaning, groaning Christians either. This is the time for valiant truth. And he takes that idea from Pilgrim's Progress and the character Valiant for Truth who engages multiple foes and in fact beats them and beats them easily with the sword which is Scripture. Just can't even imagine it. You're alone in a city you've never been. And there are those who are calling you a babbler, those who are misunderstanding you, and you're called before all, you're called before the elites of the day and, and how much bravery... How much bravery are we called to exhibit as well in our proclamation? It is no time for wimpy Christians. The truth of Easter doesn't stand for wimpy Christians. And that's not to make us hopeless, that's to give us hope. That the message we have is to make us who are weak and who are wimpy into those who do proclaim the gospel and have a message of life. You see, the outcome there, the outcome of all of this at the end of the text would seem rather limited. Of all Paul's efforts and work, look what happens. Some talk about him and just dismiss him completely and mock him. Some give him what is, this is perhaps more of just a polite sending off. We will hear you again about this. But some joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. It would seem kind of small, and yet here you have the beginning of the church there as well. What you have here are those that God has given the message of resurrection. What you see is that as a result of Paul's proclamation, these, even perhaps these few, received eternal life resurrection life. When you compare that perhaps to the number of people he addressed, it might seem small, but when you compare that to where they were headed, to where even these few saints were headed to hell and instead end in life, you see the, the yield of proclamation is so great. The message of resurrection goes to, the, to whom the Lord has appointed and brings them to life. There's the message of Easter, Jesus and the resurrection. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we come before you and praise your name. We praise you for what we see 
in a proclaimed message of Jesus and the resurrection, and we pray that we would understand it ourselves, that we would know we have and share in that same message and that same life, and that we would be those as well to to go out from here in bravery, that we would not be only those to admonish and judge, that we would not be those to just accommodate and not stand our ground, but we would be those to proclaim in bravery and truth the same exact message. And we pray that you would strengthen us, our poor, feeble selves, in this goal. All through the, the grandeur of your great name, we pray.